Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Word spreads like wildfire across Philistia that Samson has been captured and conquered. Because of his various escapades at the expense of several masses of Philistines over the years, victory over Samson constitutes a national holiday. Moreover, the Philistines see this not so much as their victory over Samson, but as the victory of their God over Samson a sensibility we've seen Israel share in their better times. Of course, Israel gives me credit. The Philistines worship a fellow by the name of Dagon, who is basically their version of Baal, a fertility specialist with an extra layer of fishy fertilization because of their location on the sea and all, another total non-entity. Of course, we cannot allow the Philistines to maintain their impression that this Dagon has any power over me or my man Samson, or any power at all for that matter. The Philistine God certainly had nothing to do with Samson's demise. So when the Philistines gather together for a festal sacrifice to Dagon in order to celebrate his victory over Samson, they rub Samson's nose in it and drag him up to their big Dagon temple. Now a blind slave, they humiliate him further by having him dance for them. It's no Swan Lake, that is certain. But seeing Samson forced to do anything brings them all sheer delight, and blind Samson plays along. Yes, he's been humbled, but nothing takes the taste of humiliation out of your mouth like a slice of purpose pie. Granted, it's a little late in the game, but Samson remembers now that his strength had been given him not for his own purposes, but for mine. And wouldn't you know, his hair's on its way back. That's the thing about hair. The stuff just keeps growing, except for you fellas with the nasty strain of androgenic alopecia, also known as male pattern baldness. No one has bothered to keep Samson's scalp shorn, overconfident that their blinding him has rendered him permanently powerless. Like a trained bear, Samson's got a handler to guide him around, and Samson asks his attendant to lead him to the strongest pillars in the place, those bearing the greatest structural weight, that is, so that he can catch a breather from his dance by leaning against them. And you know the rest only you might not know that nothing happens until Samson speaks with me for the first time in a long time. He humbly asks me to restore his strength for one last mighty act that will both avenge his blindness and prove my supremacy over the fishy Dagon all at once. Yes, I grant Samson's request. His final feat ends his own life. As he strains with all his renewed strength, and forces apart the key pillars of the temple, bringing it down upon himself and the celebrating Philistines. Thousands have gathered to gloat over him. They've even taken the party up to the roof of the place, and the revelers include the same rulers who hired the mercenary Delilah to do their dirty work. She's not there, but they are, and their lives end with Samson's. 
And why on earth is such a sequence of accounts to be found in the owner's manual? To say that Samson is a poor example is a gross understatement. He's worse than just an oddball in our story. In terms of character, Samson doesn't hold a candle to the noble Joshua, for instance. Samson is impetuous, reckless, and impulsive, which ends up being part of the point and proof that I take all types, and that anyone who is consecrated to me can and will be used to move the plan forward. Even their impulsive mistakes can be made to play a purposeful part. Now, we're still in the stage and habitat that are probably the least like your own, so it seems pretty incongruous for the collapse of Dagon's temple on thousands of Philistines to be a step in the right direction. But once again, you're just going to have to trust me. At its simplest, the land all the way to the sea, which includes the part held by the Philistines, is going to have to move into Israel's hands in order to fulfill the promised land promises in the original Abra plan. Samson serves not only as an example that all types are welcome on the way, and that everyone can serve a purpose to further it, he's also a reminder of consequence. His eye for the ladies gets him into trouble more than once, and I can't begin to tell you what we might have done through Samson had he not given in to his appetites. But he's also an example of my mercy. When he comes back to me, I forgive him. I bless him. I let him fulfill at least part of his destiny when I could quite justly reply instead that he has lost the right to do so. So here we are with you again. Any lessons from Samson for you, friend? Sure, there are some obvious ones. The themes of eyes and appetite are always relevant. A lesson to transcend your baser animal instincts and beware the consequences of instant gratification. There are deeper themes here, too, about trust and commitment. There is no one on earth, neither mother nor lover, that loves you more than I do, or who is more important than I am in and for your life. Take care, and do not let any human usurp the place in your heart where I belong, for they will always fail and betray you hopefully not in so willful and devastating a fashion as Delilah does, but you know full well that, even if it's unintended, no human can prevent themselves from somehow hurting you, lack the capacity to do otherwise. Finally, trust in me and the things I have given you. You may not have super strength like Samson, but there is something or some things about you that are truly unique. Gifts I have given you on purpose. You may still be figuring out what those are. That's okay. Keep looking. Keep asking, seeking discernment into what I am calling you to use to further my purposes. Some of you, though, know full well where I am calling you. No one is flawless in answering their call. Samson decisively so. Learn from him, friend, and if you've dropped the donkey jawbone and stepped off the way, call on me like Samson did. Let us get back to work, you and I. And no, I won't cave the house in on you. And yes, feel free to get your hair cut. 
Nothing compares to the spectacle of Samson as far as the remains of the Book of Judges go. Its final chapters largely serve to underscore the fact that there is yet no king in Israel, an introduction to next season's theme. In fact, the final sentence of the entire book is, In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now that's Judges 21, verse 25. The pattern of pendulum swing, of downward spiral, back to repentance to faith, rescue, peace, then back again to spiral down, still holds sway. If something doesn't change, this is going to be a very boring existence for everyone involved. If there's a unified theme in the book of Judges, beside the cycling pendulum swing of faith and faithlessness and the people's lack of direction that seems to be calling for a human king, it's the one we've seen throughout. I can use anyone to further my purposes. Samson's story is not the only one to make this point. Most of the heroes in Judges are misfits in one way or another, whether they're women in a man's world like you've never even seen how much a man's world the world can be, or they're second-guessing cowards or superheroes that didn't get a commensurate altruistic gene. I welcome misfits into my plan and use them to move our great purposes forward. Feel free to join that club, friend. Before we leave the Judges behind, there's a cozy little book right after the Book of Judges named Ruth, whose story actually takes place during the time of the Judges. Hers is not a story of military conquest, but rather one of kindness and love. So she gets her own book instead of being an episode in Judges squished in between Gideon and Samson. We'll not go into great Ruthy detail and do very much encourage you to spend the few minutes it will take to read the whopping four chapters that comprise her very brief entry in Tom. You may be surprised that there are several books that are even shorter, but we'll get to them in due time. What marks Ruth is her devotion to her mother-in-law, rare in any habitat, but particularly so in Ruth's case. By staying with Naomi, Ruth is truly placing her own life in danger because of the dire straits in which Naomi finds herself. She is widowed, childless, and without any source of income in a foreign land, no less. Ruth's declaration of her commitment to Naomi is so striking, uh, check out Ruth 1, verse 15 and following. That declaration is so striking and beautiful it has often been plucked from its daughter-to-mother-in-law context and used in wedding ceremonies galore. Whither thou goest, I will go. Ruth is obviously a woman of exceptional heart and character, though she is not a child of Israel like Naomi, who hails from the tribe of Judah, whose promised land territory you should be remembering by this point is of the southern variety. No, Ruth is a native of Moab, the land southeast of the Dead Sea, just south of Reuben's territory in the parsed-out Promised Land. At the time, the pickings are so slim in their hometown of Bethlehem because of famine in the land that Naomi, her husband, and their two boys moved to Moab for the better prospects there. 
Papa dies before he can attend his boys' weddings, as each son takes a Moabite wife, one Ruth, the other Orpah. Listen, it's Orpah. And they all carry on just fine for another decade or so, without Papa. Then, however, Naomi's sons die too, and the gals are up a creek without recourse in a very patrician habitat. Naomi urges her daughters-in-law to return to their parents for protection and sustenance, and the hope of another husband. Orpah leaves. Ruth stays, marking her decision with her famous non-nuptial wedding song. If you're going to read the four quick chapters of Ruth, do it now. Otherwise, I'm putting you on notice with another spoiler alert here. It really will be much more fun if you read it in the owner's manual for yourself. Okay, then. Go. Welcome back. In the intervening years, conditions have gotten better back home, and Naomi catches wind of this and returns to her homeland with Ruth. One of Naomi's relatives looks with kindness on their plight and allows Ruth access to his harvest. And wouldn't you know, one thing leads to another, and Ruth ends up married to this fellow, and they end up living happily ever after with their son Obed. The story ends with Grandma Naomi having the time of her life looking after her grandbaby. The fact that Ruth is an outsider is the big, fat, hairy deal in this story. She's not unlike Rahab or Yael in this regard, pointing to the universal goal of the plan while still in the phase requiring an exclusive relationship between Israel and me. In spite of Ruth's being born outside the covenant, her kindness and love for Naomi mark her as an exceptional human being. So exceptional, in fact, that she is not only embraced by Naomi's family and tribe, she is also made to play an important part in the Abra plan. First, Ruth serves as that powerful example of someone outside Israel and thus not seen as respectable or acceptable as a matter of course, acting with compassion towards someone different from herself. We should mention that her own people didn't hold Israelites in high regard either. Even in the midst of this period of time within the plan, where the borders of Israel are still being pushed forward to their promised limits through their neighbors' territories, we pause to highlight the importance of heart over ancestry, of love over race. Those of you who are more familiar with Tom can likely think of another, later story with a similar message, the outsider who crosses racial lines to act with compassion toward a child of Israel. Ruth's second important role in moving the Abra plan forward is that her son Obed is going to be a link in a very important genealogical chain. And the fact that Ruth, a Moabite very firmly outside the chosen people boundaries, is included in the building of this chain provides yet another signal that while we are focusing on and nurturing this one nation for the time being, our end is the healing and redemption of all nations. You could say we want the DNA of Ruth's colorblind, compassionate heart to be included in this genealogical chain, the chain from which the greatest of all kings shall rise. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. 
We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself. <laughs>